Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Alan Walter. Thank you very much, Susan. Wow, look at this crowd here. Usually when I give a talk, four or five people come along and they bring their old zucchini, you know, if they're right-handed or left-handed. Any Aggies in the crowd? Oh, you won't admit it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm thrilled to be here. What I'm going to do tonight is kind of give, throw a, a stone right across the surface of nuclear technology. I'm not going to go very deep, uh, but I'd like to kind of, you know, when we think of, of nuclear technology, we mostly think of nuclear power. But I'm only going to spend about a third of my time on that, but I'm going to talk about nuclear power after Fukushima. And then after that, we're going to go through a whole variety of things, how nuclear technology has been in agriculture, industry, transportation, medicine. See, these are all non-power, space exploration, terrorism, crime, public safety, art sciences, and yes, even environmental protection. Having done that, then kind of cap it off by looking at the economy. The impact of nuclear technology in this country and in Japan is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, when I talk about nuclear power after Fukushima, I want to start with something a little different. Some of you are old enough to remember when the Nazi warplanes were crossing the English Channel, yeah, back in the 40s, and totally decimating England. I mean, London was a pile of ashes in places. You know, 10 centuries, probably this was England's, they were flat on their back. And then you remember a gentleman by the name of Winston Churchill stood up took the cigar out of his mouth long enough to say, let all men say, this was England's finest hour. <laughs> and he was right. He was right. The question is, what will people say about nuclear power after Fukushima? Well, I'm sure many of you have this thing riveted in your mind, the three-inch headlines, you know, reactor of horror, threat of meltdown, Americans leaving Japan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Horrible thing. I mean, the first 14 days on national news, Fukushima, radiation, blah, blah, blah. I believe we will eventually be able to say this was nuclear's finest hour. Now, some of you are probably going to get up and leave right now. You idiot. What are you talking about? Well, what really happened? What really happened to Fukushima? <clears throat> well, you pretty much know now. The facilities were damaged by an earthquake of magnitude 9 on the Richter scale. They were designed for a magnitude of 8.2. Now, that, it's, a, it's a logarithmic scale. So that means that they survived a, a, an ac, a earthquake that had seven times the energy from which they were designed. And these were the early generation reactors. The problem was that 14-meter wall of water, 44 feet high. What do we got here? Probably about 20 feet, about twice this high. Can you imagine anything? Anything survived. It totally wiped out the infrastructure. Well, so if we review the accident, as I said, the reactors did survive the earthquake. Absolutely incredible. The problem was that uh, this tsunami hit about an hour later, wiped out all the diesel generators. Now, you can say, yes, they should have been built higher up, should have built a higher wall and so forth, but without cooling, Reactors don't do very well. They have to be controlled uh, for a, a fairly considerable length of time. And as those reactors were uh, clad with zircaloy, and when it gets hot, it emits hydrogen, and they wanted to make sure that the containment didn't fail, so the operators purposely vented the hydrogen out to the outer building. There were sparks, and you saw there were some, some, some of the buildings that blew up. People thought, of course, that was radiation over the place. It was hydrogen. Now, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but in fact, the bottom line is that the hydrogen explosion did take off the roof and the sides of the outer building, but the containment stayed intact in all the reactors. Well, what about radiation? That's the unique thing about the nuclear business of radiation. You can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't smell it, but it must be bad then, right? This ghost, this, this boogeyman sort of thing. 
This is the most complex uh, slide I'm going to show here. This basically shows the negative health effects, if you will, as dose increases. And we know that at very high doses, people can die. We know this from Nagasaki and Hiroshima. No question about it. The question is, way down here, orders and orders of magnitude, what are the health effects? Well, the international community pretty much has said, well, we don't know, but we're just going to assume a straight line. This is the so-called linear hypothesis. In other words, one gamma ray can kill you. That's kind of the, the theory. There are a few of the antis who would say, well, no, it's even worse than that. At low levels, the damage is more. I don't know of a single credible physicist in the world that would, would, would uh, abide that. Most of them will say, well, probably there's some, there's some threshold here below which you can't even measure the damage. Or there are even some that say, what does that mean? It means that low-level radiation actually could be beneficial. Now, when I first heard that as a nuclear engineer, it hit me like a bowling ball in the gut. What do you mean? We were always trained, time, distances, stay away from radiation. But it was the medical community that first opened my eyes and said, if low-level radiation was not beneficial, it would be an aberration of science. Because we know everything else at low levels actually stimulates our immune system. You know, vaccines do that, exercise do that. I take a couple of aspirin every day, my wife wants, thinks it makes me better. I don't know why she wants me around, but anyway. <laughs> But, but if I took 100 aspirin right now, I'd be dead. So we know in, at moderation, our immune system is in fact very healthy. Now, I'm not here to tell you that this is real. I don't know. I'm not a health physicist, but I can tell you, as over the past 10 years, the literature that I have read has every bit as much evidence to show this so-called hormesis or beneficial effect as the negative effect. This is a big area of controversy. Well, the question is, what happened in Japan? The public exposure in Japan was right down in this area here. There were a few of the workers that got over 100 millisieverts. These are crazy, above about a, a sievert, that's the international unit. There's some, there some health effects that are, are clearly measured. About five millisieverts, that's about a 50% chance of death. Down in here, there were a few that got around 200 or 250 millisieverts. But the question is, did it really cause any harm? Let's talk about a perspective. The number of fatalities caused by the earthquake and tsunami exceeded 15,000. I think the last number I heard was around 20,000. I'm not sure what, what the number is. The number of fatalities caused by excess radiation, zero. Now, that's not just my opinion. These same international groups that have, that have, that have developed this linear hypothesis have put in writing that there is no reason that anybody, including the workers, got enough radiation to cause any harmful effects. Number of ener ener energies due to radiation, zero. Number of cancers, latent cancer, zero. Number of news stories hyping the dangers, well, you've seen them here. <laughs> thousands, yeah, thousands. So what are the lessons to be learned? These reactors survived this massive earthquake. Again, seven times the energy from which they were designed. And those were the early generation reactors. The current reactors are being built now would have withstood the whole thing all the way through, with, even with cooling. The tsunami was the issue, not radiation, and so, of course, we designed for these kinds of things. We designed for much, much bigger than we ever thought. Well, why, why is nuclear then so popular around the world? I mean, why are people interested in it? Because the energy density is so high. It's a million times the energy density of fossil fuel. Incredible energy. Even higher for, for solar and wind, probably uh, at least 10 million times. You know, I'm not anti-solar and, and wind, but the energy density is very, very small. It's a long-term supply, several millennia, if we go to the fast reactor, which is kind of my field, and no atmospheric pollutants during normal operation. Now, some people will say nuclear power doesn't cause any 
atmospheric pollutants. That's not quite true because you have to get energy to build a reactor. And if we build it using coal or natural gas, then in fact we have to have some, we have to account for that. But it's very, very small compared to any other source. So, what are the main global drivers for nuclear expansion? Well, basically the need for stable long-term supplies of electricity. Electricity is so important. You've all seen the correlations of, you know, quality of life versus electricity. You've seen those over and over and over. Energy security. Uh, oil and gas and so forth are not all located evenly across the world, as we all know. And then the carbon emission concept. I've heard, that I, you know, watching this global warming thing, I see it's like a ping pong match. Yes, no, yes, no. But there is obviously a major concern. And of course, nuclear power is one of the things that could really help enormously. Well, okay, electricity is very, very important. If you look at this back from 1945, uh, through World War II kind of thing up approximately the present time, you notice that this is global energy, electricity keeps going up and up. There are some little hiccups here and there, and we had the recession that come down, but it's, there's nothing here that would suggest that somehow we're going to reduce the global demand for electricity. Remember, one-third of the global population has never seen a light bulb. Hard for us to believe. Well, where has nuclear power fit into this picture? Well, the installed capacity, you see, started uh, uh, back in, well, 1960 or something like that. Ramped up rapidly until Three Mile Island, and then Chernobyl came along. Pretty well flattened out. The realized capacity a little lower because some of these reactors were either not built or they were shut down and that sort of thing. But it's, it's substantial. In fact, this is the amount of electricity produced by nuclear power. But this is the fraction of the global nuclear power. And you see, oh, it was going up and up and up to about 17%. And then about the time of Chernobyl, notice how it's flattening and it's actually going down at this point. So in fact, the world is, is, is less dependent on nuclear than it was at Chernobyl. And there's some reasons for that. Well, what's going on recent now? Europe, Finland, my dad was a full-blooded Finn, so I can say, yeah, the Finns, by God, they turned out, they're building a new plant. Russia has planned to double its uh, capacity by 2020. I was there this summer to give some lectures. They're very real about that. France is now building new plants. France is like 78% nuclear. Italy, of course, is non-nuclear. Guess where Italy gets its power? Yeah, well, okay. Uh, UK. UK is going back to nuclear. And so is Sweden. Sweden at one time decided to phase out, but they realized they simply can't do it. They can't. Their economy would stagnate. So they're going back to nuclear. Japan, of course, is reassessing. Japan was about one-third, depending on nuclear power. They shut all of them down after Fukushima. They're starting to come back up now, but their problem is, of course, they've got to have power. So they're importing natural gas from Indonesia and so forth. It's just hectic on their, on their economy. And then Germany, phasing out. What are you paying for electricity down here? How much a kilowatt hour? 21 cents. Huh? 21? Somebody told me it was 8. Big discrepancy. I don't know. Somewhere 8, 10. I don't think it's 21. You know what Germany? You know what Germany's paying? Germany's the, 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 the poster child for solar power. Again, I'm not trying to knock solar, but they're throwing away nuclear, building solar plants. The average German is paying 33 cents a kilowatt hour. It's good, and, and Siemens, the big company, has, has shut down a billion-dollar plant building solar and so forth. They're, the day of reckoning is coming. Well, where's the big growth? The big growth, of course, is in, in Asia. China, five-fold growth planned by 2020. India is looking to a hundred-fold growth by mid-century. Um, this was the status. It's a little old, 2010. There are about 437 nuclear power plants in about 30 states. There are now about 450. 
said 55 under construction. There are a lot more now, as so I'll show you. But it's, it's pretty alive. China, when I, when I made this slide three years ago, uh, there were 24 nuclear plants under construction. Now there are 29. We have about 100 plants in this country. 29 are being built in China as we speak. India has six plants under construction. Uh, so what's, what's going on here in America? Well, this is the location of our plants. We have most of them you see are east of the Mississippi, about 100 of them. We have one up behind Lake of the Woods. There are some down here, although San Onofre is being shut down, as you, as you know. And then, of course, the big plant at Palo Verde. Well, we started off in the 1955. So we were the rural leaders. We built up rapidly until about, you see, 1986 was Chernobyl. Look what happened. We've really flattened out. However, these plants have been upgraded. Plants that were, that were in a license for 1,000 megawatts are now, in some cases, producing 1,200 megawatts because a lot of the computer codes now are much more sophisticated, so they can remove a lot of the uh, uh, safety margins that were put in. They don't need them anymore. So you notice that we, there's a lot of uh, increase in, uh, in, in, from this, the same reactors. And the plant capacity factors have gone up from 60% to about 90% now. They're operating very, very well. So the net effect of these power upgrades and higher plant capacity factors is the equivalent of approximately two dozen new 1,000 megawatt plants. So in fact, even though we're not building new plants, I'll come back to that later, we're starting to build again, we're getting a lot more out of each of our units. Also, these plants were licensed for 40 years. That was kind of arbitrary, but a lot of them now are saying they're working so well. It's expensive to build one of these plants, but once you have it going, they're cash cows. They're working very well. So they've asked the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to extend the license for another 20 years, so they go 60 years. Many have already been granted a license, and in fact, they're now talking about possibly going to 80 years. They're really, and by the time they get to there, they're all new plants. I mean, all pretty much, pretty much have been replaced. So this was the picture, and I'm going to point out down here, March 24, 2011. Now remember, the Fukushima react, uh, accident was just before that. At that point in time, oh my goodness, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had about two dozen applications. Things were going, finally, the renaissance is, is coming. And I thought, yay. You know, for a while, I didn't think I'd ever live long enough to see a nuclear power plant built in this country anymore. Finally, they're doing it. However, that was just after Fukushima. Now there are plants in uh, uh, V.C. Sumner, is in South Carolina, and the uh, Vogel plant in Georgia are built. I'll show you those. Those are really the only ones. This is the uh, Vogel plant. So we are starting again. We got a couple of units under construction, and notice there are about uh, 3,000 people involved in doing that, about six, 800 permanent jobs. This is the plant in South Carolina. It's a little further behind, but again, it's kind of exciting. And there is one more plant that uh, Tennessee Valley Authority started back in. Well, 1973, and you know, 1979 is when Three Mile Island came along. It was suspended about the time of, uh, of uh, Chernobyl. But they finally recognized we'd have to continue. So that will be built in, and, and go online about 2015. So we do have five reactors that are coming online, but it's far cry from the original two dozen or so. Well, there are all kinds of challenges. Now, I could spend the whole night talking about these, but the public is, of course, concerned about safety. That, after Chernobyl, it was a big, big deal that kind of faded away, and then Fukushima, of course, has, has brought that back. Oh my gosh, Professor Walter, yes, but what about the waste disposal? I'd like to spend, I hope some questions come up here, because quite frankly, that's one of the attributes of nuclear power, the whole waste question. People don't think about it. nuclear proliferation. Really, the big issue is cost. Those buggers, they cost $5 billion to build. You know, and it's, it's, it really, the, 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 the utilities are betting their company on that sort of thing. We've got to figure out a way to reduce the cost, because once they're built, they're cash cows. And then, of course, the skilled workforce. We'll talk a little bit about that. Well, 
nuclear power isn't stagnant. It started back in the 50s, and uh, the shipping part reactor. This, these were the reactors, like the Fukushima reactors, were built, uh, designs were done in the 1960s and so forth. Now we're up to what's called Generation 3 or Generation 3 Plus. These are the reactors that are being built now, the Westinghouse uh, uh, AP-1000. The Koreans are building some in, in Dubai or in uh, UAE now, so forth. And then finally some are more advanced. So there, it's, it's moving along quite well, actually. But because of this hiatus, at least in this country, what's happened uh, in the last couple of decades? Well, key professionals are retired or lost in industry. Talked to a couple of people here before the talk. You know, people are retiring, and very few professions are coming back into industry. This is the reason I went down to Texas A&M. We uh, you had to, you know, pick up the pom pom, say, "Hey guys, we do it." In fact, we had, uh, I think, 50 freshmen when I got there. We went out and said, "Hey, you know, we were getting, they were getting the top salaries in the university at 44,000 people," and that word got around. We ended up getting about 200 by the time I left. And, so it, but, but it's still very, very small. The manufacturing plants are shut down, and, and, and that's one of the main reasons why construction costs are a lot higher, because you know, we have to recreate all this. Korea, by the way, is an example that kept the, kept the pace, and, uh, and they're doing very, very well. But utilities now bet the farm on these new large plants, and that is one of the reasons now, for, in terms of the cutting edge, is looking at what's called small modular reactors. The driving force is to reduce the capital cost. You know, rather than paying five billion, maybe, maybe it's 500 million or something like that, to get started. Now you can talk about economies of scale, does it work? But this way the, the utilities can get into it on a step-by-step -step basis. They can meet the electrical growth incrementally. A lot shorter construction schedule. It's that long construction schedule. When you're borrowing money, that's what really eats you up. Uh, it's easier to make these things safe. You can make one of these small reactors literally take care of itself. The operators could set, go to sleep and the reactor would shut itself down very well. This has been, is actually proven. Uh, improved quality because they're building the factory, uh, and there are a lot of coal plants. You know, there's a big rush in this country to shut down a lot of the coal plants. These, they, these can fit very well. Frankly, to establish U.S. leadership, we in this country, we're leading the gang until the last decade or so, too, and all of a sudden, we hardly are seen at the table. It's Russia, it's China, it's India, and France, and those countries. Good jobs, and, and in fact, these smaller units can serve the international market. Some of these countries can't absorb 1,000 megawatts. They only can absorb 100 megawatts. So it fits really well for something like that. These are just kind of an indication those reactors are cooled with water. All our power reactors now are cooled with light water. Westinghouse has the DNC, 225 megawatts. That's about one-fourth the size of the big ones. Babcock and Wilcox has one about the same size. There are a couple more here. New scale is a 45 megawatt. Uh, reactor. Then there are some gas-cooled reactors, and in fact, GA, right down the road here, General Atomics, has a pretty nice unit for 280 megawatts that they're proposing. Uh, France has a, a unit over there. And then there's the cooled by liquid metal. This is kind of my favorite because you can, make, you can breed in these kind of reactors, and that's why we can go to millennia for nuclear power. General Electric has a, a reactor, 300 megawatts, that the British are quite interested now in chewing up their plutonium. Japan had a very small reactor, 10 megawatts, that there was a lot of interest in Alaska, some of the remote areas where they're paying 50, 60 cents a kilowatt hour because of the truck in the diesel and so forth, and they can't get in the wintertime. Very interesting one on the right, it's a Russian reactor, which they've used in several of their submarines, about eight of their submarines. They've gotten world records in terms of speed and so forth, cooled with lead bismuth, and we're getting more and more interested in that, that uh, particular concept. 
Well, just to kind of wrap this up, the International Atomic Energy Agency has kind of a listing, and this was done in about a year ago, of the number of small reactors various countries are proposing. Just so you can see, there's, there's active interest here. 18 water-cooled reactors, three heavy water-cooled, four uh, gas-cooled, and seven. So about 30, almost three dozen reactors. So there's a lot of activity, and I personally think that is a good share of where the future is. Now, I'm going to shift gears. And we're going to talk about some of the other things. I had a chance to, uh, several years ago to, to put together a book on this. I, I got so interested in, in finding out that, that really it was the non-power application of nuclear technology that really had enormous impact, probably three or four times the impact of nuclear power, and I didn't realize that. Agriculture. I grew up on a farm, and so I was here. It was kind of fun to see how the things are inter intersected. Optimizing water and fertilizer. I'm going to show a slide on each of these because water is becoming a really commodity, a scarce commodity. Fertilizer takes a lot of energy. This is the big one: breeding new, improved crops. I had no idea this thing has dwarfed about all, including medicine. It, it, it is it is absolutely fantastic to get greater yield, the better disease resistance, nutritional value. There are places in the world that probably would be bankrupt now were it not for this particular area. Or the same thing, improved animal production. Well, obviously, how can we how can we get better meat and so forth with less consumption? Insect control. Again, having grown up on a farm, I guess the good Lord has done. There's a thing for everything except mosquitoes. I, I, I'm still having trouble with that. But there has been, uh, there, there are places that people couldn't live, the tsetse fly and so forth, until uh, this, and I'll, I'll show a slide on that. And that big, the other, to me, food safety. You know, we still have these outbreaks of food safety and people die. We've got the technology to deal with that. And the studies have been done to show this is very good. If it was done on a massive scale, it would be very inexpensive. I'll talk a little bit about that. So again, just one by one, optimizing fertilizer and, and use. With fertilizer, it's possible to use tracer techniques to, to, in fact, go through the plant, if you will, to find out where the nutrition really is needed, where it's wasted. In fact, fertilizer is a very in, uh, intensive energy demand, and so we can minimize the, the fertilizer. And, of course, water. Huge, huge problem. Huge problem. Uh, and we can use neutron moisture gauges to determine the, the, the content because water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen, and hydrogen is protons, right? So we can use neutrons down there to find the protons. And in fact, this is used extensively in the area where I'm, where I'm from right now. The breeding crops, I talked about this. How to increase crop yields by reduced fertilizer, better drought resistance, uh, better maturation times, crop rotation better nutritional value, and so forth. The way this is done, stocks of material are irradiated with gamma radiation, and then, or the seeds are irradiated. And if they, they're, they're, they're all, I saw a really neat thing in South Korea a couple of years ago. And basically then, what the researchers do is find out which ones have the, the attributes they need. This all happens in evolution. It's just that it speeds it up by orders of magnitude. And about 30 nations developed over 2,000 new crops. Uh, it's been absolutely incredible. Improved animal production. Carbon-14 is radioactive, and so you know, that's in most foods, and it's a tracer. So you can put it in animals and find out how the nutrition does the right thing. In fact, there was one example in Indonesia where a multinucleant uh, block for lefthose, they actually gained rate at the, eight of, at the rate of three kilograms per week with a reduced grass consumption of 80%. I mean, that's big deal if you're on a farm. And the vaccinations, again, there were places in, in, in particular in, Alpha, in, in Africa where uh, you know, people couldn't live, the cattle died and so forth, and that pretty much has been irradiated using nuclear technology. Okay, um, well, this is one of those crazy things. I don't know how, what, what causes that sort of thing. Insects. You know, we kill insects if we don't like them with using chemicals, uh, but they create environmental problems. The toxic residues remain in the food. 
And insects develop a tolerance. These son of a gun cockroaches, you know, you just have to increase and increase and increase, which exasperates all these. The sterile insect technique is really neat. What they do is gather a bunch of the male species, and they irradiate them to the point that they're sterile, but it doesn't, they don't die. Then they release them into the population. They mate with their females and have just as much fun as they always did, <laughs> but no babies. It's incredible. It's really incredible. The tsetse fly has been eradicated in places, the Mediterranean flute fly and so forth. So it's in the boll weevil. It's really great. Now the big, this is one of my favorites. In fact, we did a lot of this at Texas A&M. It was really, hope that comes up in the, in the question and answer period. It's a huge deal. About 50% of the food grown around the world is wasted. In fact, up, upward is 90% of fish. It just, if it's not refrigerated and so forth. And in the U.S. every year, 76 million cases of food poisoning. How many people here have had food poisoning? I want to see a show of hands. Would you like to have it again? <laughs> ah, it's horrible. 300,000 people are hospitalized to over 5,000 deaths. 9-11 killed about 3,000 people. Horrible, horrible. We're killing more people from food poisoning, and we've got a remedy for it. Historically, food has been preserved with sun drying, smoking, heating, salting, canning, freezing, chemical treatments, methyl bromide is being phased out. Um, and all of these change the food rather considerably. But food irradiation, we use beta particles or gamma rays. It'll kill the pathogens by breaking DNA bonds. And, you know, the things that we're targeting, things like salmonella, E. coli, and so forth, we can do a very good job. By the way, as I learned when I was down at Texas, we don't want to kill all the pathogens because we need some of that in our gut, otherwise we'd have to live in a bubble, right? That's part of our immune system. Sorry. But we about five orders of magnitude, and it's been studied extensively. So there's a lot of application, a lot of different foods. Uh, this is one I got in Korea. That's what they're feeding their patients in the hospital. In fact, I don't know of a hospital in the United States doing open heart surgery where they wouldn't feed their patients irradiated food. They just don't want to take the chance. Or all these emergencies, like it's happening in the Philippines down and so forth, the food has to have long shelf life to get there sort of thing. It can all be done with food irradiation. It's been studied for over four decades. Uh, three dozen nations produce some kind of radiated food, and every scientific body that I know of has said, yes, this makes sense. We could go on for slide after slide after slide. The United States, we, all of our spices are irradiated, and poultry now is irradiated, some red meat. Fish, still pending, although I just read recently that some of the shellfish has been approved finally, and of course our astronauts, we send out to outer space. They're a long way from a hospital. So they eat irradiated food. And some of the supermarkets are starting to carry that. In fact, it's finally approved for a school lunch program because the latest technology. And so if the, if the schools don't do that and the kids get sick, that can be a legal case. First time the lawyers have been on our side. <laughs> Modern industry. Wow. Process control. Part of the reason that our things are so inexpensive, our paper and that sort of thing, is because of radiation used to automate plants. Uh, density, level gauges, and so forth, uh, uh, tracers, pipeline leaks, malfunctions, and so forth, is very, very well used. Or materials development, cross-linking to create our heat shrink, which you see, gamma curing of floors. I don't know if any of these floors here were that. Vulcanization, used to use sulfur for making tires. Now they're gamma radiated. Uh, and materials testing inspection. Um, I'll talk one about engine work, because it was one of the first applications. Uh, welds on airplanes. I don't like the wings to fall off. I don't know if anybody here worries about those kind of things. Or corrosion in pipes. This, this is just kind of a very simple little diagram how all this stuff works. If you have, you want to measure the liquid level, if it's down here, you have a radiation source here. Detector, of course, you're going to get a very good signal, but when, it, when the liquid gets up there, it blocks it, and so therefore it goes down. Very simple, but this is basically how these things work. 
So these gauges, film thickness, this is probably one that uh, making sandpaper. You don't want to know how the thickness of the glue is and that sort of thing, and the paper thickness. It turns out you got a gauge on top and one on the bottom, and you know what the signal should be. If the paper getting too thick, then the signal goes down, so you squeeze down on the drug, you know, this kind of thing. Works very well. Uh, beverage control. Um, if you want to buy a can of pep uh, Pepsi or something, you like to know that it's full. I asked my students if they'd feel gypped if you put a quarter in the machine and the darn thing wasn't full. They said, well, Dr. Walter, let's give you a little economic lesson. If you put in a quarter, it just goes, <laughs> got to put in at least four, right? <laughs> but they're all, but this, they're all, they're all go through this in oil level and so forth. This thing, these are wire in your, in your television sets and so forth has all been hardened with radiation. Uh, shrink uh, tubes and shrink wrap and so forth, uh, it, it, because we do, they're probably one of the most important one is silicon production, semicolor, because of our computers and so forth. We start with uh, a silicon base, but then we irradiate with neutrons, and that causes a little bit of phosphorus in there, which makes uh, perfect semiconductors. It's very big, big industry. And big in Japan and China, too, as a matter of fact. This is one that uh, is kind of interesting. People that drill for oil, well, like the oil wells, what they, they, if they want to know if there's oil down here, they drill a borehole, and then they put down here a neutron source, which is a, these are fast neutrons, the americium and Burley neutron. Behind that, they have a thermal neutron detector. So if, there's, if there are hydrogen atoms there, as there would be if there's oil, then the neutrons become thermalized, and we get a big signal here. But if there's nothing there, you don't get a signal. This is used extensively in the oil industry. Or another thing in the oil industry, these big, huge... Uh, uh, refinery operations, they're really, really messy. They don't want to even put graduate students in there to measure what's going wrong. Uh, so they, they know what, the, they bring a source up on this side, detector on that side, and then they, see, they know what it's supposed to look like. They see an anomaly and they know how to fix it. Very, very simple. Even in personal care, uh, contact lenses, band-aids, cosmetics, I mean, you name it. We spent all afternoon talking about this, but very pervasive. Um, how many people here use cosmetics? How many guys? No, not too many guys, yeah. Do you realize, have you ever been in a sausage factory? Hmm? You wouldn't eat the sausage yet, apparently. Have you ever been in a cosmetics factory? Oh, ho, ho, ho. But it's all gamma sterilized for on the shelf, so it's safe to use. Transportation, cars, airplane, train, ship power. Um, I'll talk about engine work because that was the first application, but now we know that because of the thickness gauges and so forth, we can look at structure of the body materials, the tires are vulcanized with gamma radiation, the glass turns out, the neutron probes are used for the corning glass work to get just the right kind of glass. Airplanes, we talked about welds, inspections and so forth, even rails, you know, the rails go, trains go off rail and there's ways now to look at the rails using nuclear techniques to find out when they have to be replaced, or ship power, submarines, ice breakers and so forth. I'll just show one view how, how this is done. In an engine, here's the gears inside the engine someplace. I get up now. If we irradiate just one of the tips, say neutron irradiates, to make it radioactive, then while the engine is running, we, this oil goes through here, and as that begins to wear, we can pick up in a gamma counter and so forth and turn, and, and, and basically, and while the engine is running, determine which, how the gears are welding, which basically has to do with materials. This has revolutionized the automobile industry. I don't know if anybody here had the old Model T, A, Model T and so forth. I mean, those engines weren't very good. They're much better now because of radiation technology. I just put this one up here. On, on, we know about submarines, the, the Russian icebreakers and so forth. This is the only nuclear-powered surface ship that I'm aware of, but I think the future is there. Uh, they're, they're, they're really, really, uh, I think that's, that's the coming thing. Medicine. Where are we here in medicine? 31. Oh, yeah, a little behind. Not too bad. 
Sterilization of medical products. If you go to a hospital, you want to make sure that the surgical stuff is all sterilized. Now, it can be done with steam, but that's kind of messy. A lot of them now are done with gamma, and then they're sealed up, and they're perfectly ready to use. New drug testing. You know, if, if FDA goes through a huge, huge process here, and they want to make sure the manufacturers, this is for heart medicine, they want to make sure that it doesn't, you know, lodge in the liver or in the right big toe. And you do that radiation. They have the tracer, so you can actually follow through the body. 80% of all the new drugs tested uh, before they're approved <coughs> uh, use radiation technology. Two to 300 radioisotopes already. Medical imaging and therapy. It turns out we want to know before the, the surgical knife goes in what's wrong with this, right? So about 90% of, of uh, nuclear medicine is associated with the imaging about 10% associated with therapy, but it's coming along. I don't know what's happened here. And you can see it, I guess. We'll keep on going. So the numbers of, this, these are the staggering numbers. People have been, how many people here knowingly have been from nuclear medicine? I want to see a show of hands. I'll bet you three times this many have benefited, but you don't know it. Over 12 million procedures a year in the U.S., 30 million procedures globally. 30 million. One in three patients entering our U.S. hospitals or medical clinics benefit from nuclear techniques, and sometimes you just don't even know it. It's very pervasive. Now, the types of medical imaging. Ah, here we go again. Uh, this is 90%. We all know about the x-ray. You know, when you break a knee or something like that or going for a tooth x-ray, we all know how those work. The computerized topography, the CT, is basically a three-dimensional version of that. The MRI is not a radiation process, but it is a nuclear process, and at one time I had an N here, N-MRI. The doctors dropped it because the patients were afraid it's nuclear. Mm -hmm. Then, but basically those are anatomical. In other words, they take a picture of the body, a static picture. But we like to know function. We like to know how the heart beats. We know how, if we're going to look at Parkinson's disease, we know how the brain works. We can do that with radio tracers. The most common ones are the SPECT. Uh, technology or the PET technology. I'll talk about each one of these uh, because they're very, very interesting. This is the CT technology. It basically, it's x-rays, but you go around the patient and therefore using computers and put all this together and then you can get a pretty nice picture. These are some of the pictures that you can get from a CT scan. And notice they're really quite good. If you know how to read these things, uh, the, uh, the physician can tell, you know, if you've got arthritis in the knee or, or whatever the case is. They're really very, very good. Now, if we want to get into functional, we put a radioactive tracer in the body and go through the system using a radiation detector, and we now know where it is. And the SPECT is the single photon emission com uh, computer tomography. Basically, these you inject the, the, the patient, usually with uh, uh, technetium uh, 99M. We can talk about that because that became a big issue a few years ago when the world was running out of this thing. Uh, but basically, you, you, you put these cameras around here and you get a very nice picture. PET technology, positron emission tomography. You, here we inject a patient with something like fluorine 18, which is a positron emitter. And when a positron hits an electron, pardon the expression, but all hell breaks loose. Basically, they, it, the, 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 it's annihilated. Two gamma rays, 511 keV, go off in completely opposite directions. So when you get a coincident encounter, something, you can go around here and find where that is. And the PET scans are really becoming very, much more popular now. Very, very capable. They're more expensive, but the price is coming down because there's so many of them. Now, it'd be nice to get both the static stuff, which has good clarity, as well as the functional. So many of you have now seen the PET CT scans, right? It basically combines both of them, so we get the very good uh, anatomical detail with the CT, but we can also get the, uh, the functional thing. And so what happens is here, there's a patient uh, ready to go through a CT PET together. And so when you start out here, 
uh, you get the CT scan, and that gives you a nice uh, resolution of a static sort of thing. But then you keep going and get the, P, the, the PET scan, and you start seeing how things move around. And now you can get nice picture, and you can actually see the movement of some of these, uh, these things around the heart, wherever you're looking for. Beautiful technology. Now we'll go to therapy. I realize we're just moving right along here. We don't have much time. Therapy is kind of interesting. First applied to thyroid cancer, because thyroid, that's where the iodine is. And you can use iodine 131, which is radioactive. It'll go right to the thyroid and, and completely eliminate it. Uh, blood irradiation is used. Other types of cancer, uh, like prostate, breast, and so forth, there are two modalities, so-called external beam radiation or internal. You've all, this is probably the more common one. You see the, 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 the machine that goes around and so forth. Uh, using electrons or gammas or protons, hadron, just a fancy name for heavy elements like carbon and so forth. Or internal, this is boron neutron capture, where it's possible to put some boron, mainly for brain cancer. You put boron in there and then you radiate with epithermal neutrons, you get alpha particles, which are really zingit sort of thing. Or cell directed, where you actually place the, um, the radioisotope inside the body and then smart bullets, which I'll talk about. It's possible in some cases not to do the therapy, but Bone cancer, I understand, is incredibly painful, and we can at least palliate the pain with, the, with what we know now. This is uh, the device, basically, the gamma ray kind of thing, where you uh, <coughs> go in and, and, uh, uh, and look at that. But protons are better. For the physicists in the crowd, you know that, that uh, x-rays, most of the damage is done very near the surface. But, but, but if you use a proton, this so-called Bragg peak, you can read, if, the, if you know exactly where the cancer is, you can get a very definite definition, because you don't want to kill the healthy cell. You want to kill the cancerous cell. And uh, one of these units is not far down the road here, Loma Linda. There aren't too many of these units, because they're pretty expensive. Uh, Antiproton. That was kind of new to me. My students are started getting, and the term paper was talking about antiprotons, antimatter, and I didn't know much about it. But it turns out there's work done in, in uh, Switzerland now uh, where they're looking at, at uh, basically negative protons. Protons are always positive, but you can get negative protons. They're very, very expensive, about $62 billion per gram or something like that. But it has enormous killing power. And in fact, there's some scientists say that maybe in 10 or 15 years we can do it. If we did, I mean, this would be a real... I was going to say a real bomb. That's not the right word, but it would uh, it'd be very helpful. Brachytherapy. Here is where we actually put radiation inside the body. And I want to show you, there, in these little seeds here, there, see this, this is a penny, I think, supposed to be, something like that. Very, very small, about the size of a piece of rice. The radiation, like uh, iodine-129 or, uh, uh, yeah, iodine or uh, cesium-131 and so forth is put in there. And basically, they just lodge, in this case, in the prostate. In fact, I put one in, my wife thought I was crazy, but this is my prostate gland. <laughs> Take a look. Yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> I have 109 C's. My doctor said, you got prostate cancer. Bring your wife in because you won't hear a word I say. But I had been talking about students about this brachytherapy. I thought, man, if I'm a candidate, I want to do it. So we came in, and I was a candidate. I put the, the, this was an out-of-patient type of thing. I drugged a mile about five days later. I mean, it's absolutely a miracle. It's, it works. It really works. Um, then there's the monoclonal antibodies. This is kind of new technology. You can't do this sort of thing with, say, leukemia because it's in the blood. It goes around. So how do you do this? If we could get specialized radioisotopes that can cling to a chemical, and that's the issue. The chemists the chemist are the most important people. Go to, go to the right uh, organ, if you will. Then you can do a lot. And in fact, I'll talk about alpha emitters are particularly powerful here. Those are really great. In fact, I think this is the frontier because alphas are very energetic, a very short distance, but they're like billiard balls. They really do the job. Very sharp focusing. 
a lot of promise for uh, like an operable brain cancer. It's really, really exciting. But there are challenges. Again, it's the chemist. How do you get this? How do you get it to go to the right area without bombing something else? Um, so there has to be a specific character. And making these isotopes requires neutrons. It requires reactors. And we, frankly, in this country, are, are, are running out of capability to do that. So that's, but that's the cutting edge. Okay, 40. Well, go along. Space exploration. Um, two basic uh, types of units. Uh, there's the radioisotope stuff up here, and then there's the big nuclear reactors. Most of the work has been done on radioisotopes. We use like plutonium-238, which is not fissionable, but it has an 87 and a half year half-life. It emits alpha particles, so we can actually get heat out of these things, and that's what keeps the, uh, uh, the spacecraft uh, from freezing, and in fact, we can make electricity. All, if you have something hot, we, there's plenty cold in, out, in outer space, you get the Seebeck effect, so forth, and you can make electricity. If you wanted to use these so-called thermal generators, RTGs, they're not very efficient, 7% but there are no moving parts. And that's kind of nice to know when you're out you know, 25 gazillion miles. If you want to get a higher efficiency, you can get a little uh, uh, piston kind of thing using a Rankine cycle. Or if we want to go to Mars and come back, we've got to use nuclear power. We can probably get there with chemical power, but if you're an astronaut, you probably would like to come back. Hmm? <laughs> you just can't carry that heavy load and come back. You've got to have nuclear power. There's no question about it. Now, this, these little radioisotopes, see, here's the fuel pellet, about the size of a, of a penny here. Oh, Abe Lincoln would be so proud of this. Uh, that's the plutonium-238, and it puts in the capsule. It only gets a watt out. But you can put these together, and really the units are about 100 watts. And they're used extensively. This is the spacecraft Galileo. And you notice that these, uh, there's two RTGs. These are the ones that generate electricity to power the instruments to send the signals back to Earth. There's one there, one over here. There are about 100 of these heating units to keep the, keep the thing from freezing up. Uh, in fact, not too long ago, you know, we sent a, a, uh, the, the Mars rover over, and we've got a lot of these things on there. Again, it's cold. If we want to go to uh, outer space and, or even inner planets, uh, we've got to have nuclear power, and, 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 and this is a big rocket. They've actually, there's been work done on these. These things will work, although, although there's none that are ready for flight testing at this point. Terrorism, crime, public safety. How can nuclear technology affect this? Well, public safety, I mean, the smoke detectors, and there should be some in here someplace. Most of them run with nuclear power. I'll talk about that. Exit signs have tritium in it. Airport runway lighting, they have tritium, so they're on 24-hour, 24-7. Even with the paper you know, static electricity, it's, it's possible to use uh, 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 these fighting crime, neutron activation. We know how Napoleon died. He was poisoned with arsenic, and we're now using tracers. We can do DNA analysis, very sophisticated. Unfortunately, they did not use this, they did not use nuclear technology in the O.J. Simpson trial, because it takes quite a while to do. My guess is that if they had used this, there could have been a different outcome, but that's just a personal opinion, don't know. <laughs> fighting terrorism. Luggage inspections, we go through airports, a lot of it is not using nuclear technology, but if we're talking about uh, uh, plastics or, or that sort of thing, uh, we can't use magnetic things, we can use uh, uh, technique, and I'll show you about that. Anthrax in the mail, I was at Texas A&M when this, remember when the anthrax came into the U.S. Senate and so forth, oh my gosh, we were just getting some accelerators there for food irradiation, got a call from head from uh, D.C. and said, you know, could you use accelerators to, to clean up, to, to kill the anthrax? Called the faculty together in about an hour and said, yes, you can. Within two weeks, um, the government ordered about two dozen accelerators. Have you ever seen something happen that fast? I mean, <laughs> it was the Senate, okay? Uh, portal monitoring, a big deal. All kinds of things coming into harbors in San Francisco and so forth. What's in them? 
detecting minefields, uh, and so forth and so on. We'll talk a little bit about some of these things. This is the common smoke detector. I, when I was in Texas, I looked around and I didn't see any, and I found out they only require them in where people sleep. And you know, kids told me they never slept in a classroom. I don't know if that's really true or not. <laughs> but basically, what the, this americium 241 is an alpha emitter. It just is continuing, and that's the, their positive charge. So you get a nice little complete circuit there. And it just goes and hums and hums and hums and hums. But if smoke gets in, that impedes this, change it, and then you hear this, bah! <laughs> that was this battery up here that did that. That was the battery. But it saved hundreds, probably thousands of lives. Very, very uh, nice, nice system. This is the, the uh, detector in a, an airport where you have a radiation source. You don't know what the material is, but if you radiate it and you get a signal out, you can backtrack what that, what that material was. It's been very, very helpful. The cargo. I mean, what's coming in these things? Right now, at the time I made this, about 2% of the cargo in the world was actually being examined. Now it's much higher. In fact, Pacific Northwest Laboratory has people running all over the world using radiation techniques, setting up at harbor, so we're much, much safer now. But there's still a big challenge. Arts and sciences. When have you heard about nuclear technology here? Well, a country without a past has no future, right? How do we know what's, what's happened in the past? We're using radiation decay. We can use carbon-14 or a lot of other things, as a matter of fact. But I'll talk a little bit about that. Or precious gems. I mean, if we're interested in jewelry, got some very interesting. I've seen some of this being made in, I think it was Taiwan. Um, radiation in the arts. You know, there is forgery in this business. And it's possible, and if, if, there's a, if there's a question, to use radiation techniques to determine what the constituent, the, the, how, what kind of paint is used, and then go back and see if that was used in that time frame or not. Um, this radiation, it decays, and how do we use that? Well, um, carbon-14, uh, we can use things to date from 50 to about 50,000 years. We know in the atmosphere it's almost all carbon-12, 98.89%. A little bit of carbon-13, but these are stable. Carbon-14 is radioactive, one atom in one trillion. Come on, what can you do with that? Well, it turns out that the, the way the dating process works, uh, living species maintain a constant ratio of, of this carbon-14 to 12. We breathe it in and out, so thing. But when death occurs, there's no more intake of carbon. So what happens at that point, since carbon-12 is stable, Carbon-14 decays with a half-life of 5,700 years, so we can look at the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 that diminishes with time, therefore we can determine when death took place. Um, well, that's, how do we do that? Instru we got instruments that are incredible. We can measure three atoms of carbon-14 out of a total of 10 to the 16th. You know, part of the problem is like when, uh, when uh, uh, Chernobyl occurred. The first, the first uh, uh, indications when it came around, you know, went over Sweden, came in the west, Portland, I mean, Portland, Oregon. Great big headline, 670 picocuries of radiation from Chernobyl in Portland water, blah, 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 blah. Well, nobody knows what a picocurie is. I mean, it's so small. I calculated that even if you use this linear hypothesis, which I don't believe anymore, each Portland, Oregon one would have to drink about 550 gallons of that water every day. Well, there's some other issues associated with that. But we can measure these things so accurately that some people you know, are worried. Because we can measure, it must be bad. Uh, these are some of the, the uh, gemstones that are made using radiation. And, and it's because, and usually these are neutron irradiation. So you have to be a little careful. Topaz is beautiful. There are some unscrupulous dealers that have sold these topaz things, and people actually get burned because they're still radioactive. If you get them from a reliable dealer, there's enough cool down time. It's not an issue. But they're beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, environmental protection. Moving right along. How many times do you hear environment and nuclear in the same breath? 
Well, it turns out, um, you know, if you have pollution, you, know, you want to know the amount. Where, where is it? Where is the pollution taking place? What caused the pollution? And how do you deal with it? Then managing fresh water resources. Water is becoming a huge, huge issue, both in this country, but particularly globally. So how do we use radiation to do that? Guarding the oceans. A lot of, a lot of issues in the oceans now, and uh, we can, I'll show you some ways we can do that. Understanding soil erosion. A lot of topsoil is, is lost. Now, those are all kind of radiological contamination. We do have some issues associated with the weapons production. I came from the Hanford area, and I want to talk about that. We have to, there's pros and cons in all this business, we have to be honest. But polluting our atmosphere, the brown clouds, global climate change, again, we talked about this a little earlier, uh, and then energy and the environment. So I want to kind of skip through this. Uh, managing, first of all, fresh water. 20% of our global population, which is over a, over a billion people, lack safe, affordable drinking right now. This is not just in disaster areas, that's just the, the, the status. And the global demands for fresh, potable water is doubling every 21 years. Renewable water supplies available per person are one half of that 40 years ago. And this will drop a half again in another 20 years. I mean, these are, these are huge. The World Health Organization so far very, very, very concerned about potable water. Uh, it's, it's increasing. The demand is double the rate of population. So this is really a major issue. Well, turns out that 70% of our fresh water is used for agriculture. Okay, I'm a farmer. I realize you've got to have water. But we waste a lot of water. So we can use neutron probes to find out how much water is actually needed and not just be feeding the weeds. Okay? And that's using radio, uh, radioactive tracers, not only for the amount of water, but the amount of fertilizer. We talked a little bit about the huge savings by, by using radiation techniques. How about getting new sources? 97% of the water on the planet is seawater. Huh? There's a lot of water, it's just that it's salinated. And a lot of people live in the coastal areas, so we need to desalinate, and this requires a lot of energy. Nuclear heating, in fact, could be one of the answers. One of the reactors in Russia, down in the Baltic Sea, produced 150 megawatts of electricity, but also a million gallons of potable water every day. They're now building a big plant in India, and in fact, you might have heard that, that Korea, South Korea won the contract to build four nuclear reactors in the UAE. Guess where they're getting most of their water? They have their sea around there, okay, and that's what they're going to be used a lot for electricity, but also they'll be doing desalinization. Uh, we can use reverse osmosis uh, or, or distillation. Both of them aren't all that efficient. Reverse osmosis is more efficient, but it's possible for producing electricity. In the night, we don't need as much, so we can turn on, we can do this. So it's really cogeneration is really the way to do this. Now, guarding the ocean, 70% of the Earth's surface is covered with salt water. Half of the world's population live long there. And a billion people, that is about one-sixth of the people, depend on fish as their sole source of protein. Well, therefore, they're certainly, they're certainly worthy of environmental protection. 80% of all marine pollution comes from one of these sewage, industrial effluents, fertilizer runoff, heavy metals discharge, persistent organic pollutants, and every one of those can be detected by radioisotopes. So we can, once we determine where the problem is, then we can go after the perpetrators. I grew up on a farm. Soil is a big deal, and yet topsoil can be devastating. 1,000 tons of topsoil is lost every second, every second on a global basis. So we'd like to know, you know, where it's being lost. Well, it turns out we can use satellite images, mathematical formulas, 
but we can also use radioisotopes. And this is interesting because cesium-137 is the fallout from the nuclear weapons testing. We all say, oh my gosh, you know, we shouldn't have done all that, all the pollution. But in fact, here's a way to turn it to our advantage because it was spread pretty much uniformly around the globe so we can measure where the activity is higher and lower and so forth and then start to deal with the, with the problem. Now I want to talk about some negatives. I said most of this has been positive. In fact, there has been contamination, serious contamination in the weapons industry. I, uh, I spent several years at Hanford. I didn't work on this project, but I'm, I'm, I know that both at Hanford and Savannah River in South Carolina were the major weapons producers. We have at Hanford, and you read about this in the news, these big reprocessing tanks. Uh, or underground tank. This was done during the war. The war, you know, very different mentality at that time. And some people today say, oh, shouldn't have done a lot. We would have lost the war without it, quite frankly. We'd be living in a very different situation. But they basically put this in single, the, the, the waste in single shell tank. Some of them have leaked, and there are trace amounts that have been detected in the Columbia River. When I say trace amounts, remember, we can measure such incredibly small things. All of a sudden, oh, it's being contaminated. Portland is being, you know, uh, people are dying, which is, of course, absurd. We can measure it, so they're putting that in double shell tanks, and a huge vitrification plant is now under construction to convert the, the, the liquid waste into solid waste. It's one of the biggest projects in the country. Hanford is up here, Savannah River is down there. People have said, oh my gosh, you know, Hanford is the most uh, contaminated place on earth. I lived there for 25 years. That's just not true, but I'll tell you, there is contamination in Russia, but very, very serious. Uh, their weapons program. They were doing the same thing we were doing kind of thing, but they didn't even put their waste into tanks. They dumped them directly into the Techa River or the Karachi Lake. They just dumped it right in there. And in 19, uh, oh, that's 1957, not 1050. <laughs> yeah, they weren't that far ahead of us. They actually had uh, their, their waste dehydrated, actually blew, exploded, spread radioactivity all over. And then, of course, the, the Chernobyl accident, 1987. Again, here, the actual hazard, a lot less than at the nuclear weapon sites, but and then the sunken nuclear submarines. There's a big issue in the Karabarit Sea, but in fact, there are some Russian submarines at the bottom of the ocean, but a lot of studies have been done, it really, because water is a tremendous barrier, and there's really not an issue there. However, if we get into this question of, of air, the Asian brown, I got this out of a magazine one time. Look at that brown cloud over India, China, and so forth, where it's very intense. In fact, I was in Beijing just before the Olympics, and there were very few cars on the road from January on. Why? They mandated very little traffic to clean it up, but you've seen it, you see what it's like recently? I mean, it's, it's horrible, absolutely horrible. Well, where's the mission-free energy in the US? Um, about a little over 70% is from nuclear power, and most of the rest is from hydro. There's a little bit from geothermal, wind and solar, very small, that's growing, but our most emission-free energy is in nuclear power. Finally, if you're still with here, what are the economic impacts of all this? Um, I'm going to focus, there were two studies done in the U.S., one in 1991, one in 1995, and I'll, let's just focus on 1995 because it's, 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 it's about the same, a little bit bigger. What is the impact of radiation? All the stuff I've talked about, non-power, okay, $330 billion in sales, 4 million jobs. Nuclear power, 90 billion and 400,000 jobs, factor of 10 less. I was shocked when I saw this sort of thing. Now, I will say, it uses, the model that's used here is not direct jobs. If you, if you close a military base, you know, Safeway closes, the school closes, so forth. So it has a multiplicative effect. It's the same model it's used, about 2.1 times actual job sort of thing. Mag incredible. Uh, and, and I was, the time I saw this, I was president of the Nuclear Society, and I went to around the country in the meat and potato circuit, and people were saying, oh, our whole, my whole profession, nobody likes this, we're down. I said, wait a minute. If we look at this sort of thing, if we add all this together, the, the uh, number of uh, sales from nuclear energy and radioisotopes, notice about 
three-fourths of it is radioisotopes, and about 90% is in the jobs. And if you say, well, if you combine those and compare those to the, make the, the big, at the time the study was done, GM was the biggest corporation, and Ford, Exxon, it was bigger than the biggest corporations. If you apply them together, wait a minute, there's a whole lot going on here. In fact, if this were a, 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 a country, so to speak, radiation technologies would have the gross product, gross national product, of three-fourths of that of all entire Canada. Huge, about the same as Brazil. Magnetic and incredible. Or if we're talking about various industries, banking is still a big dog, but this, we were next above electronics. I thought the airlines were big, but they're just little by comparison. Well, a study was done in Japan to see what, if this was at all comparable, and Japan has about half the population of the US, about half the gross national product, gross domestic product. Again, you'll notice relatively comparable values, not as much in agriculture, uh, about the same in industry. It turns out that nuclear energy co contributed a lot more than, relatively speaking, but the price was twice that of the US. And that's perhaps the the, the point is, a very similar kind of thing in, the, in Japan. And I'd like to see these studies around the world. I've got a little bit on China, but not much. Now, to conclude, if you look at the periodic chart, everybody here has seen the periodic chart, right? If you look at this all the way from hydrogen up to those heavy gals, what is seen here in, in, in a color, there's at least one radioisotope already commercially available. This is not research. It's already on the market. At least one radioisotope in each of these areas. If we look at the environment, notice the green ones. At least one radioactive is, is being harnessed in, in the environment. In industry, you see the pink ones. And uh, finally, uh, others, and this includes energy and so forth. That's where uranium comes in, plutonium and so forth. If you put these together, it's hard to see. But like hydrogen is used in all of these kind of things. And finally, I'll just put it, make it easy. Anything here in the dark blue has already been harnessed commercially with at least one radioisotope uh, that is actually being used. It's two-thirds of, of the elements of the periodic table. It's absolutely incredible. So I'd say in conclusion here, and looking at the clock up here, I'm going to get the trap door is going to open anyway. Nuclear power is alive and well globally. Better perception, public perception is crucial, and small modular reactors might in fact be the future. Radiation technology has already had enormously positive impacts on humanity, and all these things I've talked about, agriculture, industry, medicine, and so forth. And we can only imagine what benefits lie ahead. And that's part of what we're going to be talking about in the next few days uh, here at the uh, Beckman Center. So I gotta throw this up because I love this gal Marie Curie here. And basically she's saying nothing in life is to be feared. It is to be understood. So with that, thank you very much. <laughs>